Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we take a skeptical look at U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, and subbing in for Emma Ashford as she's out on maternity leave is my colleague, John Glazer. Hi, John. Hi, Trevor. And joining us today from The Independent, where she is a diplomatic correspondent, is Nagar Mortazov. Hello, Nagar. Hi. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. And today we are discussing Iran. Um, Iran's been in the news, Nagar, recently. Um, protests, uh, economic-related, U.S. sanctions-related. Um, I know you've been tracking this. What can you tell us about this? Well, the protest started about two weeks ago after a sudden hike in fuel prices, an overnight hike, and um, it quickly spread to um, almost 100 uh, cities across the country. Um Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people um, have been protesting as a government has verified at least 200,000 people. And uh, they quickly turned violent. And the violence has been uh, intensified. And um, now we just had Amnesty International verify that over 200 people have been killed in the protest. Now, the government says there's a lot of vandalism. Security forces have been attacked and some killed by protesters in some areas especially more um, in areas where you have a large number of ethnic and religious minorities and those other underlying problems, uh, the violence has been higher. But in general, it's been very deadly and very violent. And it seems like the security forces were really adamant in cracking it down and um, basically with an iron fist. And it seems like the protests are being wrapped up and the government is trying to quickly move beyond it. What would you say was the spark for the start of the protests? It was the hike in fuel price, definitely. The overnight hike in fuel price on a Thursday night, which is the weekend in Iran. So Iranians woke up on Friday to fuel prices that were between 50 to 200 percent hike. And, and it was just a rationing be, system. Okay, just to be clear, this is a government-initiated price hike then? It's definitely a government-initiated price. The government controls the uh, price of fuel in Iran. Now, I have to mention that fuel prices in Iran are heavily subsidized. Uh, they have been over the years. So economists, even environmentalists, the IMF have been pressuring the Iranian government to get rid of these subsidies. It's a huge burden on the government. But the way they did it, the timing and the announcement, the way they rolled it out, was just completely um, mismanaged and it angered people adding to the economic problems and the crisis that many Iranians of working and um, middle class are facing. Expand on that bit, because if, if the fuel prices um, sparked the protest, it was these underlying economic uh, problems that sort of generated all, all of this energy. And so describe the result of the sanctions policy that the Trump administration has imposed. Definitely. So these protests are basically, they turn very political, but it's the underlying cause is the economy. And it's not new. These protests have been ongoing since the end of 2017, early 2018. And what, what people are angry about is the economic situation that they're put in because of a mismanagement and corruption internally in the country by their own leaders. And then the result of U.S. sanctions that basically add to that. U.S. sanctions are not only crippling the Iranian economy, they even add, uh, they create an ecosystem, a breeding ground for more corruption. Um, and that's basically why the Iranian, um, the ordinary Iranian 
Iranians are put in a, in a situation where um, they're angry at the, their own economic uh, demise and also the way the country is being ruled by, by the leader. So it becomes political, but it's also very economic. So it's interesting because you just mentioned a few things, which I think are good pieces of evidence for why sanctions in general don't really work. You know, they target the population as a whole. So it's collective punishment and the sort of precision of the harm is not on the people that you're actually trying to pressure. And also, you know, it leads to corruption. The IRGC is an organization that is kind of empowered by a harsh sanctions policy because a lot of the market goes into the black market. Um, on the other hand, some people in this town see the protests and see that as evidence that sanctions are working. Describe this uh, this uh, problem here. Well, if the purpose of sanctions is to add to the misery of the Iranian people, yes, they're working. They're definitely contributing one of the main factors, contributing factors to the crisis. Um, but we have to see what the policy or what the goal is of the policy here. Is it to change Iran's behavior in the region? Well, it hasn't changed. In fact, it's probably gotten worse um, or more adventurous. Is it to change Iran's behavior towards its own people? Well, that hasn't changed. It's gotten much more, it's gotten much worse. 200 people were just killed by security forces. So what is the policy goal here? If it's just to add to the, just to cripple the economy for the sake of crippling the economy, yes, sanctions have definitely worked. But as far as bringing Iran to the negotiating table, we don't see any sign of that happening. In fact, it's pushed them further. Um, and as far as changing Iran's behavior internally and in their foreign policy, that hasn't happened either. So the thing I was kind of implying was that there are some real hardliners here that see protests as a possible signal of the weakening of the regime. And there are some people who, not all of the people who support maximum pressure, but some who don't really see it as a, as a, uh, uh, you know, something that will precede uh, getting to the negotiating table again, but rather just something to undermine the Iranian regime. And so they view the protests and the instability as some measure of success. It's a bizarre version of success. And I think it's wrong to expect the Iranian regime to collapse anytime soon. It's very strong in but, its own country and supports but it's a, people. It's a good question, though, just to say, you know, what is your sense of the, the sort of the strength or fragility of the regime right now? I mean, the, the protest is not a, a perfect sign uh, one way or the other, but it's a sort of a sign that people at least are not happy. So, you know, how, how um, I mean, in the instant crackdown, that might be a bit of a signal that they're feeling a little fragile. Well, the protests, as I said, the slogans are very political. The regime is definitely not popular. We have to also think about the different factions of the regime. The part of the Iranian political structure that wanted more engagement with the world, that wanted negotiations with the West, that wanted to cut deals with the U.S., that wanted to just do more diplomacy in front, instead of confrontation, that part is being undermined, yes. But the Iron Fist is still coming down. Um, the powerful forces, the IRGC, the security forces, those who control the armed forces, those who control, you know, the the black market of sanctions beyond uh, what the Iranian people have control as far as um, their elected bodies, those parts, I don't see them uh, being weakened. They might not be popular, um, but they don't need to be popular. They have the power, they have the arms, and um, they have the iron fist, which we just saw right, brought down. What about the objective, I think, articulated by Secretary Pompeo 
that um, you know what's going on in Iran right now and the all the consequences of maximum pressure uh, will help them kind of uh, will help this administration sort of pressure the EU to fully kill the JCPOA as opposed to partially. Which right now the status is that the United States backed out of the deal and all the other parties are uh, sort of ostensibly still uh, sort of adhering to it, except for Iran has made these calculated violations. So I mean, what does what do the protests mean for the future of the JCPOA? Well, Iran abided by the JCPOA for about a year, waiting for Europe to basically make up for the absence of the U.S., and that didn't happen. Um, but I think it's really in the interest of Europe, from, from what we see from European officials and their statements and their positions, it's really in their interest to save the JCPOA. They just didn't think that Iran would be serious in trying to move away from it. And Iran is getting more provocative in, you know, pushing the limits of the deal and saying that, that they are actually willing to leave it if it comes to that point. Um, so I think Europe has put in a very difficult position. And then with the recent protests, there will be a pressure from a human rights angle that um, the U.S. is definitely trying to leverage to put on Europeans to, um, you know, make the argument that there should be more pressure on this regime. But should that pressure be in the form of economic sanctions that hurt the Iranian people or in the form of trying to unravel or kill what's left of the JCPOA? I don't think the Europeans really um, would follow that line, which is how to see how the U.S. pressure, how strong it's going to be. Yeah, I find I find it hard to suss out the logic underneath the maximum pressure thing here. I mean, I think to me, if it was going to work, it would have worked by this point. And after this point, creating more misery and you know economic uh, distress. You know, you might say, well, I want Iran to be weaker than its neighbors or, you know, relative to its neighbors because that will keep them, you know, in, in a box or something. A, that hasn't happened so far because they're pretty capable. Um, you know, they're not a sort of a global regional threat or anything to, to my mind anyway, but okay, weaken them, fine. But the idea that that's going to prevent them from getting nuclear weapons, which was in fact really probably the most important thing that the hawks wanted, um, you know, you have to make someone even poorer evidently than North Korea to prevent them from getting nuclear weapons. And that's not on the table no matter how many sanctions you impose. So I, what's the point then? Well, like, where, where is this just for show? Like, where are they just all deranged, the people like Pompeo and, and company? I think what the President Trump probably himself saw where this maximum pressure came from is the policy that President Obama followed. He followed really crippling, harsh sanctions with international support on Iran. But the part that this administration is missing is the carrot. It's this carrot and stick policy that you, the U.S. put the pressure on the Iranians, but they offered a real tangible way out of that pressure. The, President Obama really reached out to Iranian leaders, made sure that he would let them continue to have their nuclear, their civilian nuclear program, continue to enrich uranium, not for um, weapons purposes, but um, continue to enrich, which is very important to the Iranians. And also he made it clear that he does not want regime change in Iran, both in rhetoric and also in policy. He made sure that the policy of regime change of the Bush era was discontinued. And that, I think, was the more important component of what the, brought the Iranians to the table. But I think the Trump administration has just taken the pressure part and left out the other you know, leg of this table. Yeah, I think one of the major problems with the overall maximum pressure policy is that 
even within the top level of the administration, there's very little agreement on what the objective is, what the expected uh, uh, consequences will be. Um, you know, I think Trump himself said, yes, let's impose maximum pressure because what he's really after is for a face-to-face -face meeting, his, his stagecraft posing as statecraft thing that he did with North Korea, uh, and to kind of get a new deal the substance of which I think he doesn't much care about, but he wants to one-up Obama. On the other hand, the administration uh, don't have that view. Some of them don't think it's a good idea to meet with the Iranian leadership at all. Some of them uh, think that re really we shouldn't be after negotiations. You can't trust the Iranian mullahs, that kind of rhetoric. Um, and so what you have is all these mixed signals. And that's another big thing that prevents sanctions from being at all effective is that you don't signal clearly and consistently what the other side can do to get relief. Uh, and so they're not working. Um, I think that's a good point is there's no consensus within the Republican Party and also not in the administration. We have to remember when President Trump wanted to get fully the U.S. out of the deal, Rex Tillerson was opposed to it. General McMaster Jim Mattis. These are all people done for. These are all people around him, his top aides who advised him against it, and he did it anyways. And now he surrounded himself with a new set of aides. You mentioned um, Secretary Pompeo. That's interesting because he has uh, he has made twelve points. These conditions for Iran that go beyond what Trump has ever talked about as far as what he wants from Iran. So now you have a secretary that's ahead of the president as far as what he essentially wants regime change because those twelve points equal to regime change in Iran. So. It's de there's definitely no coherence, and I don't even think there's a strategy. I really don't see one. Talk a little bit about the domestic politics in Iran. How has all this affected the kind of contest between hardliners and reformers? Um, Rouhani is, is still the top guy, but uh, elections will eventually come. How, how, how do you assess this? Well, as I said, this has definitely weakened the part of the Iranian political structure, the moderates, the reformers who wanted more engagement and diplomacy with the outside world. The unraveling of the JCPOA, it's still not completely dead, but people haven't seen much of economic benefit from the JCPOA that they expected. And that has definitely weakened the moderate camp and the overall uh, portfolio of negotiation, which Rouhani ran on, has two presidential election campaigns were basically centered around these negotiations for the first one. And then the second one was centered around the fact that he got the deal from the U.S. So all of that has been weakened. People don't have much trust um, in the system for, you know, getting the economic benefit from, from any kind of negotiations and diplomacy. And that has definitely uh, strengthened the hand of the hardliners. We have parliamentary elections coming up in Iran. Uh, the moderates were able to get some seats at the last election this time. It's not very sure. And with the recent crackdown and the violence against protesters, which which came from from all factions of the of the regime, it wasn't just the hardliners. Um, I see the moderates getting even less popular, and that means the hardliners will be able to have a um, the higher hand or the stronger hand in the upcoming parliamentary elections and possibly the next presidential elections. So, but just sort of to pivot right from that, you know, what what do you think Iran's strategy is right now? I mean, obviously, 
praying that Trump loses is part one of any strategy, I think. But, but they're not betting on it. Yeah. But right. And so what what do you see? Um, you know, I, I think the the airstrikes on the Saudi oil facilities, you know, the sort of ag aggressive sort of deterrent behavior in, you know, uh, letting the U.S. know it's not going to be easy if you come, you know, meddling. What's next, though? Is it back? Is it cranking up the nuclear program again? What What do you think? Well, the Iran's policy right now is maximum resistance. As I said, I've interviewed Iranian officials, a foreign minister, his deputy, and some other top officials in the government. And that's that's the line, the unified line among the moderates and the hardliners that we're going to resist to the maximum in the face of maximum pressure. So more pressure means more resistance. Now, would that mean economic pressure on the population? Yes, it does. It, it would mean unrest in the country. Yes, they're willing to crack down. They're willing to get violent bring down the Iron Fist, but then at the same time, they're not willing to back down in the face of pressure because they don't want to seem weak. And um, it's basically the opposite of President Trump is trying to portray. He tried this with North Korea and he got a meeting, but the Iranians are making sure that they will not give him, especially that meeting, in the face of this pressure. You know, one of the ironies of all this is that uh, it's after the JCPOA, after the Obama administration's outreach to Iran, um, it had kind of changed things. You know, the Republican line in the 2016 campaign was pretty consistently, we're going to, this is a bad deal, we're going to get out of it. But I strongly suspect that if an ordinary Republican, that is to say actual Republican, had won, uh, they would have listened to their advisors. They would have listened to the intelligence community and they would have said, well, we'll watch it very closely uh, and we'll keep the pressure on, but we'll keep the deal. And so the political situation here in the United States seems to be very much trending in favor of re-engaging with Iran, opening up diplomatic relations, you know, uh, sort of stopping all of this uh, animus that leads nowhere. Uh, and but Trump is kind of an outlier here, and he just happens to be president. So looking forward, we're, we're approaching 2020. I, you know, Trump has an uphill battle for re-election, but it seems to be a consensus on the Democratic side. And I don't know what you think, um, or close to a consensus, that maximum pressure is not really the right policy. I think there's a consensus on the Democratic side, and we, I mean, we say President Trump doesn't have a strategy, but it seems like his end goal is also to negotiate with Iran, to engage with Iran. It's just the way he's trying to get there is the wrong way, or he's moving away from it, but that seems to be his stated goal repeatedly. Um, and when you talk about the Republicans, what we also have to remember is when, before Donald Trump pulled out of the deal, there was this one period where he basically... Uh, put the decision on Congress, the Republican-led Congress who had 60 days, a 60-day period to basically unravel the deal. And they didn't. They didn't even put it to vote. And there was a consensus among the Republicans that even though we disagree with this deal and we fought it when it was being made, but we don't want to be responsible for breaking it. So it's just right now, it's just the president and maybe a few people around him. It's He doesn't have the support of the party and he definitely doesn't have the support of the Democrats in you know, pushing Iran to the or this edge of this military conflict. Or the American people, I think. All right. So, I mean, I agree with John. I think, you know, American opinion was never very favorable toward the deal before. But I think in like Obamacare, once it's there, it's hard to get rid of because then, yeah, I think people are a little bit sort of status quo biased, if you will. Um, but one question I have on the public opinion front is actually about Iranian public opinion because, 
you know, it's interesting if you look, um, you know, over the decades at um, the rest of the world's opinions about the United States, it, it goes up and down by president. <laughs> they tend to really hate Republican presidents around the world and they tend to like Democrats. Same with Iranians. So, yeah. And so, but but the, the, this is not a normal Republican president. And I'm not sure it's going to be so easy to bounce back even if Trump does lose. So, you know, these protests were against the Iranian government. But, but how much, what percentage of that in everyone who's protesting's mind is, yeah, and the United States. Like, I'm worried that we're losing even the younger Iranians who are, I think, the most pro-American Iranians there are because they didn't live through the revolution. But I'm worried about losing them. Well, the Iranian society is actually one of the most pro-American in their region because of this animosity between the leaders and the U.S. The population wants to do the exact opposite. It's very different from the Arab street. Um, but as far as you don't hear anti-American slogans on the street. These are working class, mostly impoverished neighborhoods on the outskirts of major cities or smaller towns where there's a lot of economic problems, high unemployment, very young male uh, protesters. So it's it's you don't see a comprehensive analysis of the situation and reflected in the slogans. It's directly at the regime, at the leaders. But sanctions have played a very significant role in this economic uh, situation that people are in. And what the U.S. is losing is losing the political elite. So when I say the political elite, it's not necessarily the leaders. It's the young people who are active in the political sphere, in political parties, people who get activated during elections, people who can move votes um, and, you know, participating campaigns and all of that. And that part is really losing not just uh, in this administration, but in the credibility of the American world. How can you possibly sign a multilateral international deal and then just, boom, completely get out of it? That's something that even the Iranians weren't thinking of doing. Right. Well, and I think the collateral damage from, from Trump's pulling out of the JCPOA has been that our European allies also have been hurt by this and upset and don't trust the United States. I, mean, I don't think they trust no one Trump trust Trump farther they could throw him, you know, at this point. Which and is not so, very far. which is not very far. And so I mean I think, you know, you're looking at the Democratic candidates, one of the reasons that they want to undo this, not only the deal itself, but I think maybe even more in some cases is because of the harm to the relationship with NATO allies and, and so on. So, you know, and because I think, you know, you mentioned before, Nagar, that, you know, you're you're a has tr tried not to go along with the U.S. on this, but they just economically, they just couldn't avoid going along. And so I think they've been upset by this. But I mean, you know, the U.S. is still number one. <laughs> it is. And it's hard when you put in that position to choose if you want to do trade with the U.S. or with a small country like Iran, of course. And then the pressure of secondary sanctions and all of that on European countries, it's a hard decision. But um, um, we have to wait and see. And I just want to add that what, what I was saying about the Iranian people and U.S. losing credibility, basically what President Trump has done in the past two or three years or his administration is basically proving everything the hardliners have been saying about the U.S. for 40 years. Now they're telling them, see, we told you. It's like their dream coming true step by step, pulling out of not just the nuclear deal, all of these international pacts and negotiations, abandoning allies and doing, you know, um, all of the unusual foreign policy moves that this administration has taken. You know, one of the weird things about um, the Trump administration's Iran policy is that it happened. It, it's happening within a context, political context in this country that is increasingly skeptical of 
uh, overcommitment in the Middle East. Uh, and, you know, I think of the uh, intra-regional relationships right now and some of the proxy wars that are going on in, say, Yemen, for example, or Syria. Um, and I think these are becoming in, you know, increasingly less relevant to not only everyday Americans, but even the political class here. It's increasingly difficult to find precisely where U.S. interests uh, come into the situation, for example, in Yemen. What, what dog do we have in that fight? Uh, and so uh, does the region or say Iran, you can start there, but maybe in general, sort of sense this uh, Begin us, you know, America beginning to step away from the region or become less interested in fighting all their fights. Well, I think the Iranians definitely have the Iranian hardliners, even though they're trying to. They've they've tried to pull back their forces and their proxies into basically not taking the bait from the U.S. to start a military conflict, but they've pushed the edges and the limits as much as they could. We saw the attacks in the Persian Gulf and on Saudi Arabia. These. Um, uh, shipping cargoes and uh, it seems like they they understood and there's a lot of talk in Iranian media so the internal political discussions that the U.S. doesn't want war this president doesn't want war and that has in a way emboldened them but then at the same time it's a dead end because if you don't want war and if you're not opening the door for diplomacy then what because the status quo is very dangerous it's a volatile region and it's not something that you can just sit on and wait without doing anything so I think but basically, this administration either needs an off-ramp or, or some next administration needs to change things. My sense is that, for example, like the Iran-Saudi rivalry, my sense is that the leadership of both countries is kind of getting tired of it. I read uh, David Ignatius' column in the Washington Post that talked about the players in the region have lost confidence in the United States, and therefore, they're taking it upon themselves to engage in diplomacy that they weren't doing when we were a clear sort of side taker. Uh, you know, is that, do you see any of that happening? Is that beginning to kind of roll out? Yeah, so with the United Arab Emirates, it started and with Iran, they're taking some uh, off-ramp out of this um, very tense situation. And it seems like there's some talks with the Saudis. The Iranians have been trying to at least publicly reach out or say that they're interested. And um, I, I think that, that that's an interesting analysis because that's what President Obama was essentially trying to do, trying to um, basically lift his finger from his thumb from the scale and saying, you need to figure out how to live together in the neighborhood. Um, and I think that was the correct policy because U.S. allies in the region like Saudi Arabia, Israel, the other GCC countries have been relying on this very, very powerful backer and not really looking for sustainable solutions Um towards this neighbor who's also very powerful. Iran is a power in the region and it's not going to go anywhere. It's a large country, big population, very educated, sophisticated and resourceful. So it's not something that you can, a country that you can ignore. And I think right now in a different way, because President Trump is trying to disengage and uh, both mentally and also in, in action from the region, I think some uh, U.S. allies, especially the GCC countries, are um, basically realizing that maybe they should try to figure it out themselves. And I think that's a good thing because then you will probably see more sustainable long-term solutions coming out of this. Yeah, I think unfortunately... Uh, the U.S. is not leaving the Middle East. Um, I think that's a fallacy. I think people think Trump is less interested in war than he is, or he's more promptable into war than I think 
I would wish him to be. But um, the, the ironic thing to me is that by uh, backing Saudi and Israel and other GCC countries, we emboldened the hawks there. At the same time, sanctioning Iran emboldened the hawks there. Yeah. Like, wow, we did it Everywhere. all at once. And that has made the, the region more dangerous. And, you know, I don't know how many months ago it is now that I, you know, actually wrote a blog post about like, well, what are the odds of war at this point? And I, I haven't written another one of those in a while, thankfully, because I, I feel like it's receded a bit, the chances. But I don't think the chances are zero. I mean, as you point out, you know, it's a volatile region. There's a lot going on. And I, I'm actually uh, still worried that, you know, an accident or a miscalculation on either side at this point. Um, and again, especially because Iran doesn't, it's not obvious what Iran's next move is here, but maximum resistance, you can stumble over that line once in a while. And and I'm worried the next time they do, it's going to be something that the U.S. has to respond to. Is, is Iran actually ready to fight a war against the United States? They definitely are. They've been preparing for this day for 40 years. The hardliners, as I told you, have been warning everyone, the moderates, the whole country, that the U.S. wants to come after us. And this is the day. Now, what I said was, I don't disagree with you, but they've been trying to hold their lines and their proxies into not being the starter of the war. They definitely don't want to start a war with the United States or be seen as the one who started one. But are they ready to fight it? Definitely. They've been, you know, prepared and, and part of the nuclear program and the missile program and all of these uh, proxies across the region, all of that is basically their preparation for this day. So they've been ready and more than ready. And, you know, maybe they won't be able to win against the U.S. military, but they'll be able to make hell, not just in Iran, but in the whole region. Absolutely. It'll be an ugly, messy, messy fight. Worse than Iraq. Oh, for sure. Well, By orders of magnitude. Yeah. This yeah. is a much more unified country. Yeah. Um, Bigger, more, more populated. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So just to, to wrap this up, put on your forecasting hat and and tell me how, how this goes over the next couple of years. What what What's Iran's next big move? How does the U.S. respond to it, vice versa? Like, how do you see this... Happy ending? Not so happy? Well, where were we headed? Well, the Iranian people are living in misery, so it's very hard to say anything happy right now. But I think what, what the regime is doing, the state, is to basically continue this maximum pressure, try to be more sustainable economically and find ways around sanctions more towards East Asia, Russia, which is, again, bad news for those who wanted more trade and engagement with the West in the country. Um, but then also wait and see if President Trump is not reelected or if he's removed from office or anything, that definitely changes the calculation very much. Uh, but Iranians are not betting on that. We've heard from the top, the Supreme Leader himself, and also from the president and foreign policy officials that they should be prepared for another six years of this maximum pressure. And that's that's the long-term uh, economic um, decision-making that you see with the f hike in fuel prices, basically the government trying to get rid of the subsidies that they spend um, on fuel to try to save some more money for, for the hard road ahead. So I think they are trying to... Uh, basically keep the status quo as far as resistance, but also find ways out of this economically and also put more pressure on Europe politically to try to save the deal without the U.S., which Europe hasn't been very successful in, in doing and the promising, but Iranians are upping the pressure and uh, they're hoping to get some results out of that. 
All right, we're going to write that down and, and hold you to it in a couple of years. Thanks, Nagar, so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks to our producers, Luis Almeida Abrigo and Cecil Sherman. And if you want to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like this episode, please don't forget to give us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>